You may be seated. Good morning, church. But we are glad to see you here, and we are glad to be able to see you more clearly. Uh, we had our work day yesterday, and not only did the windows get clean, but got all the bugs out of the light fixtures. So you go down the hallway, uh, you're going to see things that you probably haven't noticed in some time. But we had uh, a lot of volunteers from the church all through the age groups. Uh, working outside, uh, working inside, and uh, getting our spring cleaning underway. So grateful for all those that uh, sacrificed their time and, and made themselves available uh, to uh, take care of our facility. Another group of people that we want to recognize as some faithful volunteers is our a group that uh, supports regularly uh, Thursday nights our uh, men's warming shelter night. Uh, a lot of people provide meals. A lot of people uh, go and spend time on Thursday nights, uh, some even at other times than Thursday night. But uh, they had a closing banquet uh, Thursday night, and it was, uh, it was good to see so many people there. And one of the things that uh, was done was they presented some appreciation uh, recognition awards. And uh, Sherwood Oaks was one of the churches that they uh, expressed their appreciation for. I've never seen a church birdhouse, but uh, it's, it's amazing. Done by the uh, men of the warming shelter, great craftsmanship uh, that uh, it is presented to Sherwood Oaks for all the time that people have come, provided meals. But one of the things that they commented about was the way that our, our members relate and interact with the men at the warming shelter and the friendships that have been forged and the lives that have been uh, blessed and uh, changed and, uh, and grown from that time of sacrifice and service. So we want to uh, say thank you to all those that uh, serve in so many different ways. Today we're we're looking at this idea of leadership and service and what is the measure of a great leader. Um, our uh, passage of scripture that's the anchor point uh, for chapter 30 in our 52 days of uh, uh, going through uh, the core 52 program. Uh, today's is the... Uh, uh, main verse, probably one of the most important verses that Mark wrote in Mark uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 45, it uh, was up there, even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, there is a great contrast between a worldly leader and a leader in God's kingdom. And a lot of that uh, difference comes in the way that we look at and the way that we approach people. So many times people look and say, well, you know, I, if I can just get a new position, if I can get a little bit more power, uh, a little bit more authority to, to direct and orchestrate people, point where they need to go, uh, that I'll be great based on power, position, and authority. But 
Christ in the kingdom sets a whole different standard. It is service and it's sacrifice. So we want to, to look at that today. A lot of times people, as they're looking at power, means, well, how many people do I have un beneath me? How many people can I control? How many people can I say, you've got to do this, now go do that, or, or you need to do this different? Uh, in a sort of a harsh management style. And some have the attitude that if I can get a position, then I will have more ability to dictate how people interact with me. And what you will find out is we, we start being abusive with the power and the position. We're going to have no followers, but we will have subordinates. But the relationship might not always be good. But in the spiritual view of the kingdom, it's the idea of sacrifice and it's service. It's not the power to dictate but it's maybe having an area of expertise where we have learned some things in our life that is relational to where people are in their life and they seek us out and that gives us an authority to speak into their life because we've had a similar experience. When people looked at the teachings of Christ, one of the things that they noticed was a great contrast. The religious leaders, uh, they would uh, be there and argue back and forth about this point, that point, and the finer points. But Christ, he spoke as one who had authority, one who had an expertise that knew what he was talking about. He had come from heaven. So when he talks about heaven, it's not theoretical. It's the idea of this is the way it is, and this is what it means for you. And so the people would look and, and see him and his teachings and the simplicity of the way he would use parables to lay alongside uh, earthly truths. And they would say, never has a man spoke like this. His words, they were wonderful. We, got, uh, we put uh, three fill-ins today uh, just to reinforce uh, this. And, and I'm pretty sure you'll, you'll probably be able to fill it in right off the bat. The first one, Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus said, he who will be greatest among you will be servant of all. And then at the end of the, the parable of the talents and stuff where uh, those that were faithful in what the Lord had entrusted to them, they get that commendation from him. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. They had worked faithfully with what God had entrusted to them and the abilities that he allowed them to have. When we, we look at leadership, back in 1960, it was uh, uh, Gregor, or Gordon McGregor that he wrote and, and came up with the idea of there's two theories of leadership of two ways of looking at people and managing people. And that's theory X is um, people, they're, they're passive, they're lazy, and they're only motivated by money and security. Where theory Y takes a little bit of a different track. 
assumes that workers, they want to grow psychologically. They desire autonomy and responsibility and that if you can entrust to them, you will get much more from them. And it will be beyond not just your ability to foresee what could be, but it invites them into that whole creative process. And that's where Christ and the beauty of the body of Christ comes together, where he puts all of us together in the body of Christ, each according to the abilities that God entrusts to us, and he fits us together into a congregation that is able to meet the needs of the community. Jesus had the ability to go through a crowd and meet whatever need was presented to him. You and I don't have that ability. It takes all of us working together to be able to meet needs on such a broad basis. So Christ comes in and shows himself to be an example, not of an X manager or a Y manager, but as a servant leader. 1977, Robert Greenleaf, he wrote a transforming book for all those that study leadership theories. And his, he simply entitled it Servant Leadership. And it was like, I've got this new thing, servant leadership. But uh, it really wasn't new. Uh, Christ had already uh, implemented it. He had practiced it. He had demonstrated it that uh, he who would be greatest among you let him be your servant. That we want a leader who is not so much looking at how to be over us, but a leader that can be beneath us on how to lift us up and to build us up and to empower us to send us out. Christ set the pattern and the standard. Now, we would probably say, uh, have to say that Christ wasn't the first servant leader in in theory, you go back to 1 Kings chapter 12, King Rehoboam. Uh, he was one of the children of Solomon. Solomon had this great kingdom, and after Solomon's death, Rehoboam, uh, he ascended to the throne of Israel, and he's faced with a dilemma. Okay, now what am I going to do? How am I going to lead these people? And so what he did, he, it was a smart thing to do. He got a group of counselors together. And his uh, followers, they petitioned him, said, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh load and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam, he has this wise executive council, and they consult, and they make the statement, if today you will be servant to these people and serve them, they will always be your servants. But in his arrogance... Rehoboam decides to ignore that device and he says, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And his stubborn pride and his cruelty made him the ultimate distasteful person in Israel. He was a good theory ex-manager. And as results, the people, they took his financial counselor, they stoned him, and they were seeking Rehoboam. He has to flee in his chariot, and the, the people turn, repudiate his leadership, and make Jeroboam the new king of Israel. 
Now, maybe it's uh, for some people that are born into royalty that they have a hard time embracing servant leadership. But you look at Christ, the only crown he had was a crown of thorns that was given to him in his service of sacrifice for you and for me to make it possible for us to have that gulf span between a holy God and an unholy people. That kind of servant leadership, it was inspiring. And so when you look at um, this idea of leadership, what's a, a servant leader look like? It was uh, Jay Stack. He was a, a speaker that was, he was president of the Student Leadership University organization to train young people on how to be good leaders. And uh, Pat Williams in his book tells a story uh, about leading with integrity. And the story is uh, when Jay Strack was invited to go to speak to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So happened Tony Dungy was the coach at that time and had Jay Stack to come in. Well, he gets there a little bit early and so he walks into the room. There's nobody there yet, it's still early, but there's, there's one guy that's uh, setting up chairs and so he said, excuse me, I, I'm Jay Stack. And so he, uh, the man stopped, looked up and said, oh Jay, I'm Tony. And he said, Tony Dungy. He said, so you're, you're the coach and you're setting up chairs? He said, well, can I help you? He said, no, no, I want to do this myself because I know who's going to sit in what chair. And so as I'm putting the chair in place, I know what that person is going through, what they're dealing with. And so I use it as a little prayer time to pray for them. And so I'd prefer to do that myself. But the idea of a servant leader doing something that... Some people would say, that's beneath you, but he's, no, this is a great opportunity for me to invest in the lives uh, of others, that through prayer, I can be involved in their life in ways that I can never be involved personally by inviting God into the situation. It's somewhat, somewhat fascinating to see how it works. The, uh, it's an old story. And I love to tell it, that I'll try and condense it as much as possible, but it's back in the old days when transportation was not easy. You had the trains that would go from large city to large city along the, the, the railway. And for traveling salesmen, uh, they would go to the large city and then they had to figure out some way of getting uh, transport into the outlying communities. And so one salesman, uh, uh, the way the story went, was he made his way into the big city and then he found uh, a hitched a ride with a guy that was going to be taking a delivery into the far, far town, just a small town, pretty much removed from uh, the large city. And so they're talking as they're riding out in the, in the wagon and he said, you know, this is a fascinating community. Of all the communities I go to, this one I'm, I'm really impressed with. And one of the things that fascinates me most is there is a church building in that community. It's un unlike any other church that I've seen. That uh, it, it's just remarkable. Uh, it's impressive. And so as they make their way up over the hill and look down into the valley, sun shining down, hitting the church, and he looks at it and says, that does look like it's an impressive building. And so as he goes into town, 
he decides he wants to find out a little bit more about this church building. So he goes to the minister and asks the minister, can you tell me a little bit about this building? I mean, to, to have a, a stone building like this, uh, it's just, it's so impressive. It's different than what I've, I'm used to seeing. And he said, well, we learned a lot in, in building this church and putting this thing together. That uh, look at, if you look at all the stones, those, a lot of those stones are stones that our horses stumbled over, our buggies bumped over uh, in the roads. We dug them up and cleaned them up, set them aside. And after time, when we decided to build the building, that's, well, let's use these stones. And so they meticulously placed them together in this church building. And he's, the preacher said, you know, one of the things that we learned in, in doing that, he said, do you, do you understand the imagery of that? He said, well, yeah, I think so. That the people that you may have difficulty with or frustrations with in the living of life, that uh, you're bumping and rubbing against them and it, and it causes frustration and friction. But with grace and perseverance, they can be reclaimed, they can be clean, and they can be useful in being a part of God's kingdom. He said, yeah, you understand it perfectly. He said, now see the big stone over at the edge of the field? He said, yeah. He said, it, we had two teams of horses and four of us were two and a half days getting that stone out of a deep ravine. We looked down there and saw it and said, that will be a perfect cornerstone. So when we finally got it out, our stonemason, he got in and he started uh, putting water on it, cleaning it, and he says, uh, this isn't going to work as a cornerstone. He said, well, what's wrong? He said, it's got a fall in it. It goes right through the very heart. He said, do you understand the imagery? He said, yeah, if we're not right in the center, we're not going to be as effective in God's kingdom. It's a beautiful church building. And every time I read 1 Peter, I'm reminded of that story because Peter, this is impetuous Peter that Christ had to be so patient with in so many different circumstances trying to grow him and mature him. It's Peter that writes that we like living stones are being pieced together into a building for God's beauty and God's structure. I've got a little chart uh, up here that uh, I, I think it's up there that it, it just simply impresses us with the importance of understanding mission and vision. Now you've got two different people working in the stone quarry and we should be kind of familiar living in Bedford with all the limestone. Uh, so guy asks one of them, well, what are you doing? I'm busting up rocks. Hey, well, you don't sound very excited about it. Well, I'm just busting up rocks. Another person asked him, he said, what are you doing? He said, oh, th this is wonderful. I'm building a cathedral that all of the results of all of my effort is going to go into something that is going to be a sanctuary and a blessing to others. So my little part of the process, it's just me being a part of building the cathedral. We have uh, as our, uh, one of our core values as a church that Tim keeps reinforcing it, the, the leaders in different various ways reinforce it, that we want to be a people helping people grow generations 
of Christ-led influencers. It's living stones built together, life upon life, generation after generation, till the very coming of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his kingdom. Tim challenged our congregation with uh, three targeted transformations that we want to try and help accomplish in our community this year. And the first one is we want to help transform those who are spiritually at risk. And we want to also help transform people who are physically at risk. And we want to be there to help transform people who are emotionally at risk. You take the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we know it so well, and we have different perspectives on it when we work our way through it. But there's, there's four different uh, mindsets in there. And the first one is the Jewish traveler. He's just going through life. No cares, just moving from one point to another. And uh, his circumstances change. He meets up with a, a group of people, the thieves and the robbers, that they ambush him, they attack him. Uh, they rob him, they strip him, they leave him for dead, and their attitude looking at him is, what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. And then here comes the religious leaders, those that are paid uh, and those that are making their living out of caring for uh, God's kingdom and God's uh, religious practices and people. So they look and they see the man laying there and they kind of skirt, go to the other side of the road because who knows, there might, this might be a trap. Somebody may be laying in wait and they're going to jump me if I stop to help them. So, uh, and the priest would say, I've got to go have temple responsibilities. So if I touch a dead body, I've got to go back and go through this whole ritual ceremonial purification and I don't have time to do that. So I, I'll, I'll be concerned about them, but I'm going in to do God's work in town. And so their idea gives us the, the, the attitude of what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. And then you have the most unlikely hero of the story that the, the Jewish audience would be somewhat appalled that Christ would make him the hero of the story. But it's the good Samaritan. The man that no one, no, no good Jew, probably the man that was walking down the road, if he saw him in other circumstances, wouldn't have anything to do with him, would drive him away. But in his point of need, he's glad that there is a Samaritan that looks with the attitude of what's mine is yours and I'm going to share it. So he binds up his wounds, puts him on his own ride, takes him into town and goes even farther and said, if you take care of him, when I come back through, whatever it has cost you, I will repay you. And you look at that and, and say, that is amazing. And part of Christ's challenge as a people is, uh, who was the neighbor to the man who was hurting? And we have to look at it and say, maybe I need to be going through life, not looking at people as what's yours is mine, I'm going to take it, and it's not going to be uh, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it, but I'm going to be the good Samaritan. I'm going to say what's mine is yours, and, I'm going to, and we're going to use it. And so the, it turns the whole story around to us asking ourselves the question. It's not 
who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? The context of our passage. It, uh, it's an easy passage to, to process through that uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these are also referred to as the sons of thunder. Sometimes they, their, their attitude and their emotions uh, gets red hot and Christ has to grow them through that. Uh, they came to him, said, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's kind of a blind request. Will you do whatever I ask? And you're supposed to say yes. Uh, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. For you know, you do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And confidently they said, well, we can, we can. Jesus said to him, verse 39, you will drink from the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. That the, the cup of suffering, the baptism of sacrificial death, you're going to experience some of that. But to sit at my right and the left in verse 40, it's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been repair, prepared. And then verse 41, we, we should expect it uh, because so it happened so many times. When the ten heard about it, they became indignant with James and John. Now, are they upset with the request or are they upset that James and John beat them to the punch and asking? A couple chapters earlier uh, in the, the narrative as Matthew records it, uh, Christ had told them that there's going to be a time after the, the Son of Man is, is in his kingdom that there's going to be 12 uh, thrones and that people will sit on those thrones and judge uh, the children of Israel. And so evidently they go home and they're talking about it at home and mom hears about it. And I look at uh, Jesus' aunt, the mother of James and John, as that Jewish helicopter mom that's always hovering, wanting to make sure that her, their sons take every, advantage of every opportunity to them. And so uh, she says, well, you need to get in there and you need to make your request. You know what Peter's like? That he's always impetuous and, and he is going to be there jumping in and he's going to get the place before one of you two. So you need to, let, let's just go and ask Christ. And so when... Uh, uh, the ten hear about it, they're upset. In verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. It's good uh, theory X leadership. And then in verse 43, Christ gives us four words that Etch that in your mind so that you'll see it time after time after time. When we're looking at greatness and we're looking at service, it's not like the world sees and the world practices and the world promotes, but Christ said, not so with you. It's going to be completely different. Instead, whoever wants to become great 
among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. That uh, you look at that, that passage of scripture and, and Jesus, he's an influencer. He has that ability to take a person where they are and encourage them and move them forward to places they never thought they would go. Whoever thought that that fisherman would be, become such a great proclaimer, uh, an example of Jesus Christ. Jesus chose the 12, and it's an interesting mix. Matthew, the tax collector, does everything. He makes his living by supporting Rome and seeing that Rome continues to function. And then he brings in uh, Simon, the, Simon the Zealot that hates anything to do with Rome. And so you got these two in, in this mix, uh, all the personalities. And the only thing I can say uh, as Christ chooses those 12 is what vision and what grace he had as a leader. Being able to see not just the person just as they are, but to look up beyond at what they can be. And the grace is saying that I'm not locking them in where they are, but I will spend the time and I'll spend the effort to grow them to where they can be. As we as servant leaders, if we can approach people with that mission and with that vision, we can effectively be building stone after stone, generation after generation into the kingdom of God. It's a teaching opportunity that Christ uses. John chapter 13, he reflects back at that time. And, and the apostle writers, they talk about, it wasn't just one time that the disciples are arguing about who's greatest and trying to figure out what's the pecking order. Who's going to be on top? Who's going to be on the bottom? Uh, who's going to have the place of honor? And so in the Last Supper, they've made their way into the room and a lot of pressures are, are there, but now they're in the, the safety and security uh, being together. And uh, they're still talking about, well, why does he get to sit there? Why, why do I have to sit here? Shouldn't, he, he should be sitting over there, not you. And so they're arguing among themselves, and what does Christ do? Takes off his coat, lays it aside, takes up a basin, throws a towel around his waist, and he goes through and he washes the disciples' feet. He becomes the servant that the customary thing of always washing the feet of the guest who arrives had been overlooked by all the 12. But Christ took the time to fulfill that cultural need. But also, it's a teaching point that when Christ says, the servant is never greater than the master. In the final week, you get, you get the contrast of two basins. There's the basin that, of Christ that shows service and sacrifice where Philippians talks about Christ did not uh, consider equality with God as something to be grasped or tenaciously held on to, but he gave up himself and became obedient even to death on the cross. Why? Because of us. So that demonstration of sacrifice and service, it stands in great opposition 
to the bad example that we have with Pilate, the other basin that uh, the people are clamoring for Ju uh, Jesus to be uh, uh, executed. And Pilate, he has some concerns saying, oh, well, I don't really see uh, any guilt in this man, so I, I'm going to release him. They, they said, no, no. And so they are creating an uproar. And Pilate is one that has ambitions beyond Jerusalem. He wants to get to Rome. He wants a higher authority, greater uh, power, greater position. And if the people create an uprising here, that's going to hurt his moving up the ladder. So he's trying to find a way to navigate, how can I get out of this situation? That I've got what my conscience is telling me, but I've got also what the crowd is clamoring for. And so he doesn't follow his conviction. He doesn't, he tries to not make any commitment about Christ. He said, well, I have a custom. I always release somebody this time of year. And we've got Christ and we've got the worst case that I can think of in our jail. We've got Barabbas. And the crowd says, we want Barabbas. And he, he's dumbfounded. Well, that plan didn't work. So he goes to plan B. He has a basin of water brought in. He washes his hands, dries them off, tells the people, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You, his blood be on you. And so here is someone who doesn't want to make commitment, wasn't, doesn't want to demonstrate conviction. He's just looking for compromise and trying to pass his responsibility so he can continue climbing the ladder. And when he gets to the top of that ladder, what is he going to find? Same thing that a lot of people could find, that they've leaned their ladder against the wrong wall. So we look at the examples, the contrast of two basins. And Paul, we don't have a lot of time to go through, but He's the one that persecuted the church. He's the one that gave approval to the stoning of Stephen. And later in life, one of the disciples that were chosen to be among the seven in Acts 6, uh, Philip. The first two mentioned is Stephen and Philip. Philip was an evangelist. Stephen, he was an evangelist and boldly spoke. And he was the first martyred out of the seven. Well, years later, Paul is going to the house. He's at the house of Philip the Evangelist. And he has been a complete transformation. Instead of persecuting the church, he's proclaiming the church. He is saying that whatever it, the cause of Christ needs, if, if it's uh, for me to be hungry, if it's for me to be in prison, uh, whatever it takes just to move the, the kingdom along, I'll do it. And so Christ is his pattern. And then Paul starts using himself as an example. And he would say, now, don't follow me, but only if you follow my example as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's Christ. That's the one that came and served and sacrificed and in, in just a minute we're, we're going to take time for communion where we'll take the emblems a cup and a piece of bread Christ's body and his blood offered in sacrifice for us 
that it is a statement of the greatness of Christ. Servant to all. He became obedient even to death on the cross. I would never have the opportunity, you would never have the opportunity to take those emblems and to partake of them had Christ not come. Had he not been the one to share his life on our behalf. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Indian tribe in Ecuador, the Aka Indians. And he put a quote that, that we've got for you up here. He was martyred as a missionary and he wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He invested his life in sacrifice and service to others, just as Christ had done it. And what he found is he didn't lose his life, he found it. He gave it away and he gained it. We can gain a great confidence in Jesus Christ. Let's remember that as we take the emblems, the blood, the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in giving our life, we find life. You've given us a great pattern, but it's a challenge to always live up to it, following the example of Christ. But we know that as we give ourselves, we really find ourselves. So we thank you for the joy, the peace, the comfort, the understanding of your son, Jesus Christ. As we take the emblems in hand, let us take his sacrifice in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.